pathway. There is also overactivity of the natriuretic peptide pathway and the things that come as a result of <coughs> that production. These, these are supposed to work in concert with each other to balance one versus the other. So when these symptoms of heart failure occur, when there's excess of the neurohormones, the natriuretic peptide system gets activated. You get production of things like substance P, bradykinin, and other types of peptides that counteract all the bad things that occur as a result of the renin pathway. So dilation and less hypertrophy and all the other consequences. Now there's an enzyme that, or a series of enzymes known as peptidases, that degrade these natriuretic peptides. Peptidase enzymes degrade these peptides. So if you wanted to extend the activity of your own endogenous protective mechanisms, what could you do pharmacologically? Block the peptidases, right? We block the converting enzyme on the left-hand side to prevent aldosterone and angiotensin from being formed. We could block the peptidases on the right side and preserve bradykinin and related peptides and allow them to do the good things that they would otherwise do. So if you go back to the end of the 1990s, early 2000s, there was a company hoping to bring to market the first of what were going to be called super ACE inhibitors. Omipatrolat was that drug. It was going to be the first of them. And these were known as vasopeptidase inhibitors. They were both in one drug, both ACE inhibitors and peptidase inhibitors. So that one drug had activity knocking out both enzyme systems. Angiotensin enzyme is blocked, you already have those drugs. And now a drug, one drug is also able to inhibit the peptidases. But it didn't make it, because you haven't heard of it. Right? I don't think you've heard of it. It never made it to market. It was abandoned. Why was it abandoned? <laughs> it depends on uh, the eye of the beholder as to whether or not the appearance was unfavorable or not. But the data, the data certainly were not favorable. And it was mostly side effect related. Alright, so what we're doing is we're giving a drug that blocks the converting enzyme and prevents angiotensin II from being formed. And we're also blocking through a pathway not shown on this picture. We're blocking degradation of things like bradykinin. Remember, converting enzyme is one way that bradykinins get degraded, but there are other pathways to facilitate degradation of bradykinins. And through these, through these peptidase pathways, that also is being blocked with a drug like omipatrolat. So what do you think was the consequence? What a long age was. Was that? Neuropathy. Uh, not neuropathy. Inflammatory, you could say, in that family. Lung issues. What was the, what's the rare but potentially severe side effect of ACE inhibitors by themselves? What we think because of angioedema because of 
bradykinin accumulation. And now we're giving a drug that knocks out multiple ways to degrade bradykinin. And so you have a greater incidence of this, which is, this is, this is what angioedema looks like. So this is not comfortable. It's not consistent with healthy airway breathing. And it's potentially very dangerous. So there were too many instances of this occurring with omopapulin. And it made sense, right? You were, you're blocking bradykinin degradation now through multiple pathways. Some visualized on this slide and some you have to pretend are there. And now we have a, an even stronger drug in terms of risk for, risk for angioedema. And just going back to the ACE inhibitors, because this picture actually comes from ACE inhibitor-induced angioedema. This was a person that was taking um, one of the ACE inhibitors, I don't remember which one, but how long have they been taking it for? Years. In this case, it was years. It was one of those reports that shows years of use, and all of a sudden they present. Not that that's the most common presentation, but it can occur even after years of use, but more common to occur soon after use. Anyway, too much angioedema. So that strategy was abandoned for about 10 years. And then, and then came a new paradigm. And that was, well, why don't we combine a peptidase inhibitor with an ARV, right? ARVs don't tend to cause an accumulation of bradykinin, correct? Right? They block the receptor. They don't prevent degradation through the enzyme. So why don't we combine a peptidase inhibitor, in this case, the cubitril, with one of the ARVs, in this case, Valsartan. And the combination for that is known as Entresto. And that seemed, to, that seemed to be safe enough. And so it made it to market a few years ago in these very easy to remember doses, <laughs> which probably has something to do with the marketing strategy behind them. But if you add them up, they're, they're, they're uh, round numbers. So you have a, a 50 milligram dose, right, 24 plus 26. You have a 100 milligram dose, and you have a 200 milligram dose if you add the two components together. All right, so in order to show that this new therapy is useful in heart failure, what kind of study do you need to conduct? What does it have to look like? How do you design it? Randomized control trial? Yep, a randomized controlled study. And what are the arms? Placebo versus... Placebo would be too dangerous. That word placebo generated a lot of conversation. Um, I didn't quite make it all out because it was a lot at once. What one treat some of the patients if they needed it, but you would do one or whichever one you think is currently being whichever one is currently being used versus something new. Yeah. But you wouldn't just take away their drugs. Right. The placebo part would be <laughs> placebo part. I think this is what you were all trying to say is that would be unethical, right? Because we have standard of care. We know that we can't withhold renin blocking therapy and have good conscience. Maybe get that through an RV. Wouldn't, wouldn't happen. So the, what, the way they designed the study was um, this combination versus an ACE inhibitor. They could have chosen Valsartan by itself, but they chose to use an ACE inhibitor. And in this case, they used an Alpro, which, which was one of the studies, which one of the original ACE inhibitors to show that ACE inhibitors were good in the first place. Like the Solve study, consensus, those from back in the 1980s, that, that's what was used. And the name of that study was 
it was the paradigm study, in the hopes that they would change the paradigm. And they got the, they got the letters to fit somehow. And what they showed was that use of this new combination, which was marketed at the time as just, not marketed because it was still investigation, but that's um, Secubitril plus Valsartan, LCZ 696, that if you used it long enough, there's benefit, statistically and probably meaningful benefit. Now the percent reductions are not as great as what we saw with ACE inhibitors by themselves in the early days when we were adding those compared to nothing, but comparing this drug, or this combination of drugs, to the current standard of care, ACE inhibitor, was even better. So that's, that's good news. Hard to show that kind of difference when you're already treating patients with the full core press of everything that we currently know to be a benefit and heart failure. Now what do you think was the big risk? And it wasn't angioedema. The risk of angioedema was about the same in both groups, which was comforting. It meant that the drug could make it to market. But what do you think was the big side effect? One, one vasodilator, enalapril, compared to two vasodilators. Hypotension. Hypotension, yeah. And there was a really large run-in period to this study just to make sure patients could tolerate these drugs. So you had to, in order to get into this study, you had to show that you could tolerate both enalapril and the combination therapy over the course of a few weeks. And then if you could, you were randomized to one of the two therapies. <coughs> and there were about 10% of all patients screened that weren't able to progress into the study because they couldn't tolerate the blood pressure reduction. So out of like 10,000 patients that they enrolled, 1,000 of them couldn't be included in the study because there was that much hypotension. And so in clinical practice, that's something we need to be careful about. Starting on this combination, if we choose to do so, is very likely to drop people's blood pressure and sometimes to the point where they can't tolerate it. So that becomes the practical dilemma. Did they include incidents of like hypotensive crisis once they started the randomized trials? Um, like, were you allowed to fix their blood pressure? Or because, like, even if they no, absolutely. You're, you're, you're allowed to intervene. So did they include uh, measures of how often people developed treatment requiring hypotensive episodes. Absolutely they did. Um, and it was reasonable once they got in, but the, they were a selected population, right? They were proven to be the ones that could tolerate it. But even though some of them had treatment-related adverse events, I'll show you what some of those numbers were. So when you look, hypotensive episodes, the ones for which you needed to record it and do something about it, was, it was more. It was almost twice as many, even the patients that were washed into the study the ones that we knew could tolerate this type of therapy, so that's a lot. But in terms of overall kidney health or overall other things that we might worry about, really no difference, maybe a little bit better with the new combination therapy. So it looked okay. In terms of angioedema risk, it didn't exist. There was no difference. Now, when we transition, in many cardiologists that treat heart failure patients are trying to transition their patients that have, again, reduced ejection fraction over to this new combination, the barrier to doing that is what? Old drug enalapril, new combination drug, 24 plus 26 milligrams, glossy print to accompany the advertisement. It's cost, right? That's like a four or $500 a month therapy versus something that's a $4 generic. So there might be affordability barriers. Most insurance companies will pay for it, but they'll require a high copayment. The percent of the cost the patient bears is higher. 
So that's one barrier. The other is making sure we transition carefully. Just it's a stronger vasodilator therapy. It's two drugs versus one. And so we've got to make sure we start with small doses. But on top of that, if patients have previously been on an ACE inhibitor, we want to make sure it's stopped for about a day and a half before we even start the intresto. Why is that? Because of the too much bradykinin, th these are the population that might be at risk for angioedema, right? If there's still ACE inhibitor in their system, and we start this newer nephrolysin inhibitor on top of that, you might get some increased angioedema. So we want to make sure it's washed out. And so the vasopeptidase inhibitor in this case, just to go back, Secubitril, is known specifically as a neprolysin inhibitor. That's the specific <coughs> enzyme that we're targeting. And this combination is now referred to as ARNI. What does that represent? It's ARNI therapy. Angiotensin receptor neprolysin inhibition. Right, so RNA therapy, I guess you could use that term. So the reason I'm making a big deal out of this is because what will happen is whether you go into cardiology or some other practice, you may come across patients transitioning to this type of therapy, and it's good to know two things. It's very strong at lowering blood pressure, so we've got to be on the lookout for hypotensive episodes and starting with small doses, whatever those may be, and making sure that they don't, whether they mean to or not, continue on their ACE inhibitor. There are many patients who end up on multiple drugs, not because they want to be taking all those drugs, but because they just don't understand what their regimen should be. Like for instance, if you prescribe, let's do this scenario. You prescribe someone lisinopril, 10 milligrams, and it's currently December of 2017. You're treating their, their blood pressure. Give them lisinopril 10 milligrams. Now they come back in February of 2018, and their blood pressure is still a little bit high. So what do you do? You have them increase their lisinopril to, where would you go? 11 milligrams? 15. You, du you double it, so 20 milligrams. And now they come back in April, maybe April 3rd, and their blood pressure is still a little bit high. It's come down, but it's still above where you want it to be, so now what do you do? You further increase the lisinopril, now they're at 40 milligrams. Well, when you wrote this first prescription, how did you write that? Lisinopril 10 milligrams, take one tablet daily. How many pills did you give them? 30. 30, okay. A month supply. How many refills? At least one, maybe five, maybe 11 for the whole year. Maybe you gave them a 90-day supply at once. Make it easier. They can fill through their insurance, get a reduced cost on it. All right, so that prescription has refills. And now you gave them the new one, that probably has refills. And you gave them this one, that probably has refills. So they go to fill their medicines. Is it possible that at home they have all three of these? Yes. They go to their pharmacy and they fill all three of these simultaneously? Yes. It shouldn't happen, but could it? Yes. Yeah, this just happened in our clinic just recently. That's why I tell you. <laughs> so, like we look through, there's ways we can look at what patients pick up at their pharmacy through electronic refill history. And this guy had picked up on the same day his prescriptions for all three of these. 
Now, if he doesn't realize that these three medicines that are all white pills but different in size and shape for the same thing, what is he taking? Oh. He's taking 70 milligrams of lisinopril a day, not the 40 we were hoping for. And this kind of thing happens all the time. When you e-prescribe something, it doesn't automatically tell the pharmacy to discontinue what they used to be on. Most of the time, they'll pick up on it, but there are times that they don't, where sometimes the insurance won't pay for it. In this case, it adjudicated because the insurance company didn't care. This was a medication that was dirt cheap, and they weren't paying attention to it. And they were actually refilled on different days. Like, he calls in his refills on one day, but then picks up this prescription another day and fills that separately. Even though it's all the same store, they missed it. So anyway, what that means is patients could very easily still be on their leftover lisinopril and have a new prescription for Entresto. And so this combination could occur. So uh, you said to be careful day and a half to make sure things don't add up. But so how are you accommodating for the fact that so many people weren't allowed to be in the study because they all had hypotensive crises? Is that really just making up for it? You're starting at slow doses. And what, what you're actually doing is you're starting on an acinabernier B first if they're not already on it and making sure they can tolerate that. And then you transition to a small dose of Entresto. As the clinician, you do that. As the clinician. Oh, okay. Yeah. You. Yeah, you're actually doing that little experiment with each individual patient. And like I said, it's mostly the cardiologists that are doing this. The primary care is not getting into this. They just don't understand it yet. But they're coming across the patients that are being treated this way, and it's good to know what they should or shouldn't be on. It's low doses. It's avoidance of ACE inhibitors. It's that practical thing. And that's across the board. It's for all clinicians. So whether you're specializing in heart failure or not, it's likely you'll encounter these scenarios. So good to know a little bit about it. Um, logistically, is there a way that you can tell a pharmacy to continue a Yeah, so what would you do to solve this problem? There's a few ways you can do it, right? You can, you can tell the patient, and sometimes that translates and sometimes it doesn't. Um, you could write a note on the prescription. You could put it in the directions. This is to replace. And sometimes that gets captured and sometimes it doesn't. Um, not all electronic health records, but some, have the ability to automatically generate a discontinued message. If you remove it from your med list in your system, then wherever the last place that prescription was sent to electronically will get a message, by the way, this drug no longer is active in this patient's profile. But most systems don't do that. It's possible. It's coming on the horizon for the majority, but right now it's the minority that do that. Uh, so the way, only way to really know for sure would be to call the pharmacy and say, hey, this is a drug they're no longer supposed to be on. But who's going to do that? Right? That's super labor intensive on top of everything else you're already trying to do. So how did you figure out that you had? Yeah, how did I know yeah. about this? So part of what I do with our patients and our practice, and again, this is ambulatory primary care, adult side, is we have patients that have high blood pressure, they're on a registry, and we follow up on them to see what is it that we can do, maybe medication-wise, to make things better, to get them to at least have better blood pressure numbers. And he was on the list. And so he's one that we just worked on recently. To, and what we encountered was not what we expected. I put him into the hyperadherent category, not the forehearent. <laughs> he actually knew, fortunately, he knew what all these were for, and was taking them like as he wanted. Like some days he took 30 milligrams, <laughs> some days he took 40 plus 20, just doing what he thought what he needed to do. And I could sort of tell that might be the case from his note because when he came in for this visit, he was like, yeah, I'm on 20, but some days I take 30. And 
because I think my blood pressures at home are too high. And so it's, but he's, he's actually typical. A lot of patients, it's just the opposite. They're on all three and they have no idea that they're not supposed to take all three. He was actually hoarding them. <laughs> all right. He's educated. Spent so much time on this side. We're stuck on this. <laughs> All right, what, I forget what happens. Oh, All right, so to acknowledge that the, these drugs are still sometimes used. So nitrates and vasodilators is where the story all began. What can we do better on top of digoxin and diuretics? Let's add vasodilators, and this is what was available at the time, and it was used. Now, there was not as great of a benefit as we were hoping for. Ace inhibitors, ARBs were way better. But there was on sub-analysis a population that seemed to benefit especially well from this type of strategy, nitrate plus arterial vasodilator. Can you guess what that population was? And there's now a specific combination drug that has this, this combination of agents in one pill called Bidil, and it's, it's marketed specifically, indicated specifically for this population. So patients that might do better on direct-acting vasodilators compared to drugs that modify the renin-angiotensin system. Who are those people? Renal compromise? It's, it's not the renal compromise population. Patients that seem to be less sensitive to aldosterone and renin blockade. Their blood pressures tend not to drop when we give them as much, when we give them ACE inhibitors and ARBs. Do they have oil Maybe you don't know because we haven't really talked about it. It's African Americans. Patients who self-identify as being black tend to respond better to direct acting vasodilators than they do ACE inhibitors, at least in terms of blood pressure reduction. And it turns out that they seem to benefit more than the rest from this strategy in terms of disease modification for heart failure. So Bidil is specifically indicated for use in African Americans with heart failure. On top of everything else, but that's its unique niche. That's where it seems <coughs> to be a good benefit. And I think that's the only drug that we have available to us that's as an ethnicity-based indication. So that's, that's pretty unique. All right, and then digoxin and the story behind this drug. So this is, it's still an important drug, even though the use is much lower than it used to be, because when it is encountered, we've got to be aware of what to watch out for, given the narrow therapeutic window. This is an agent that will do what? It does two main things to the heart. Increase contractility. It, it increases the force by which the heart contracts. So contractility is increased. And I'll show you the mechanism by how that works. And it does something else, which I have no picture. It reduces heart rate. It slows down the rate of contraction. And sometimes will be used not just for heart failure, but what other population? Where else might we want to control heart rate? Yeah, atrial fibrillation. It's not our preferred option, AFib. We'd rather use beta blockers or calcium channel blockers. But it can sometimes be used to control heart rate as well. The control of heart rate, no picture, no slide for this, it's driven by enhancing parasympathetic activity. So enhancing vagal efferent activity on the heart. And we all know that the vagus nerve does what to the heart? It slows it down. So digoxin mimics that effect. 
its effect at increasing contractility is explained at least in part by this cartoon here. So the dioxin is essentially a poison for this sodium potassium ATPase pump on cardiac cells. So digoxin blocks this pump, which means that potassium can't enter. And then downstream, what you end up having is a trapping of calcium inside the cell. And that increases the force of the contraction. So increased calcium inside the cell has a downstream effect of blocking this sodium-potassium transporter. Digoxin competes with potassium for binding at this pump. What might put you at greater risk of enhanced digoxin effect in this pathway? Low potassium levels. That's the reason I said the statement I said right before the question. So when your potassium level is low, the amount of digoxin it takes to increase inotropy is less. So one reason for DIG toxicity, if you want to label it that, would, have a, would be having low potassium levels. And what other drugs do patients with heart failure take that lower potassium levels? Diuretics. And how many people with heart failure are on diuretics? All of them. Almost, almost all of them. Right? So there's this potential concurrence might exist. DIG plus low potassium, that, that pairing could certainly occur in the real world. Where do we get digoxin from? It comes from plant sources. Anyone know what plant it is? It's digitalis that comes from what plant? It's, it's foxglove. The foxglove plant. It actually grows. It, it doesn't look like a weed, but it grows like a weed. It's that easy. It probably grows on the sidewalk out here. It tends to grow in this climate. And it comes from natural sources. And because of that, might be part of the reason that it undergoes the type of um, pharmacokinetic behavior that it does. Let me just go back forward here to this side. Remember this? So that brings back some mixed feelings. <laughs> so when digoxin is in the intestinal tract, it will be absorbed into the body. There is no liver metabolism. It's cleared entirely through the kidney. So once it gets into the blood, travels to the body, extensively distributes to muscle tissue, eventually cleared through the kidney. But before it can be absorbed, some of it might be effluxed. PGP, remember P-glycoprotein efflux transporters? Digoxin is a substrate for PGP transport. So I'm, I'm going to make up the number, but just to make the numbers a little bit easier to deal with. If you give someone 100 milligrams of digoxin, they die. But if you gave them 100 milligrams, maybe 10% of that would be effluxed, which means how much would be absorbed? 90 milligrams is left for the rest of the body. We usually give like 0.1 milligram or 0.2 milligram. But, so something like 90% is absorbed, 10% is effluxed. These efflux transporters can be interfered with the same way that cytochrome enzymes can be interfered with. So there's a whole bunch of drugs and medicine that can alter the bioavailability of digoxin. And the reason that digoxin is a PGP substrate is probably because of what? It comes from plant sources. Remember, these efflux transporters are likely here 
because of evolution, little guardians in the GI tract to present, prevent our body from being exposed to environmental toxins, and certainly plant products that contain things like digoxin would be viewed as environmental toxin. So it's likely the reason why it's even a substrate in the first place. But there is no liver metabolism, there are no cytochrome interactions. They just look like cytochrome interactions because many of the same drugs that block cytochrome enzymes also block PGT. All right, let's just go back here. So the adverse effects of digoxin are these here, and they tend to be dose-related. So GI, visual disturbances, and just other CNS side effects, the higher the dose, the more likely these, these symptoms are to occur. And the arrhythmia is usually a bradycardia-related arrhythmia. If potassium is low, almost always magnesium is low. So the two almost go hand in hand. It's really the low potassium that puts you at risk for reasons that we talked about. Narrow <coughs> therapeutic window. And clinically, it's actually even narrower than this. We say that the normal range is 0.8 to 2 units. What we actually try to do is keep people at 1 or below, in particular females. If you're up around 2, you're just asking for toxicity. What I want you to remember is that it's narrow. It's a narrow therapeutic window. There's not a lot of room for forgiveness. And all sorts of things might get in the way. Drug interactions through PGP or otherwise, poor kidney function that impairs clearance, or changes in distribution because of the way that the drug binds to certain tissues versus others. The lean body mass is why we tend to shoot for lower levels in women versus men, just because they tend to have less of it than men, so the distribution is altered. All right, now, and oh, and the bottom line is the DIGE trial, published in like the early 1990s. The question at the time was, what does digoxin do to overall outcomes? Well, let's study it. Let's randomize patients to digoxin, no digoxin, and see what difference does it make and what was found. It did not reduce the risk for mortality. There was no mortality benefit. That was the bad news. The good news was it reduced symptoms, it reduced risk for hospitalization, and it didn't increase mortality. And there was thoughts that maybe it would be harmful because it does increase the force of contraction, and that's opposite to what we do with some other therapies like beta blockers. So the good news is it didn't worsen things but it didn't make the mortality benefit any better either. So, and that's why the drop-off is there. It might be good for symptoms, but there are other things we can use. If you really need it, you can use it, but it's complicated. All right, this agent here, Ivabradine, is a relatively new drug, just approved the past few years, almost around the same time as Entresto. It's much different, though. This is a drug that can be used to lower heart rate. So it's analogous to what beta blockers might offer, but it's not a beta blocker. It doesn't have the same kind of mortality benefit that we've seen with beta blockers. Those data just don't exist. Not that it's harmful or beneficial, we don't know. But where this has a role is if you're trying to get someone to a certain heart rate target, and it's taking such a high dose of a beta blocker they can't tolerate it, this might be a way to get them there. Add <coughs> this on top of the beta blocker or use it in place of the beta blocker. So, and just listening to one of our cardiologists talk about this yesterday, for every maybe 100 or 200 patients with heart failure that she has, there's like only one or two that she puts on this drug. So it's seldom used, but it does have a, a unique niche role. Its mechanism is to block what's known as the, the funny current. 
IF st stands for the funny, you've heard about this? I guess something about it looks funny to the PP guys. <laughs> but, um, so anyway, it blocks the IF channel and then lowers depolarization. So you can reduce heart rate by altering the action potential. Remember, the action potential in the SA node is different than the action potential in the rest of the cardiac muscle. So it's not sodium flowing in, it's calcium in this funny current. And this funny current is what's being blocked and slowing down heart rate. Does this one drug that lowers heart rate without affecting your blood pressure? It's the drug that lowers heart rate without modifying your blood pressure all that much. Yeah. Where else did it come up? Or you just heard about that on the side? Oh, okay. All right. I would have been curious to hear if this has come up in class already, given that you hadn't heard about anything else we talked about. <laughs> 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 Why in the world this Especially because it's so simple. So, so, so I'll just point this out, but I'm not going to ask you about it on an exam. This luminous phenomena is a side effect that is sometimes uh, present when patients take this drug. So there's a lot of visual disturbances when they take this. It's sort of scary if they don't know it's coming. The same thing can happen with digoxin. It's a little bit different, but these visual disturbances are dose-related. And if you're, if you're having visual disturbances, everything looks blurry and sort of yellowish tinge to it, it probably means you're digoxic. Pretty, pretty classic symptom. There's a, there's a medical term for it. I don't remember what it is. You guys know? Did you once know it or forgotten? No, it wasn't on the list? <laughs> Did you have a list of medical terms that you had to... Oh, you said to take a test with no Or did you have to just list terms? Multiple choice, maybe it was there. All right, and then um, lastly, so we have these drugs that serve as the bridge transplantation. So if you are in stage, these are the patients where beta blockers don't have a role. If your heart is so decompensated that you need a new heart in order to live or a device to keep your heart going, then the last thing you want to do is give a person a beta blocker. So acutely decompensated disease, no beta blockers for them. That's where the, the rationale part still holds true. Everyone else, beta blockers ought to be implemented unless there is a clear reason we can't. All right, two different types of iotropes can be used. Dobutamine, which I sometimes call it the front door approach, and either norinone or inamorinone, which are analogous to the back door approach. Let me show you a picture here. So here is the cardiac cell. Here are the beta receptors on the surface. They are stimulated by norepinephrine, and that would increase cardiac contractility. In decompensated severe disease, this just isn't happening enough. So how can we enhance the effect? Give dobutamine, that drug itself, can stimulate the beta receptors and increase contractility. So that's what this drug does. Dobutamine directly binds to the beta-1 receptor and stimulates the force of the contraction. Alternatively, we could give a drug that prevents inside the cell degradation of cyclic AMP. And the enzyme that degrades this substance is phosphodesterase. So if you give a phosphodesterase inhibitor, there's more cyclic AMP, and it's that chemical that actually causes the contraction. And that's what milrinone will do. It will block phosphodesterase. There's now more cyclic AMP. There's now more cardiac contractility. 
independent of what's happening at the beta receptor. So that's why I call it almost the backdoor approach. Front door, straightforward, dobutamine, alternatively, norinone. These drugs are given by continuous infusion. Most often patients are hospitalized, but sometimes they're set up for home infusion. Increasingly, what happens to these patients? If they don't get a transplant or they're waiting for a transplant, the death is one outcome. Ventricular assist device, right? So devices are put in, and which puts those patients at very high risk for other complications like thrombotic events. And then, um, so these are the bridge therapies. And then just to be complete, so IV nitroglycerin, so you can give this around the clock because if tolerance develops, you just give more and more of it. But that's short-term therapy, again, for advanced disease. There is an agent that was brought to market with the hope that it might be better than what we currently use. Diuretics and nitrates as potent ways to treat decompensated disease. Natricor is a drug that's built in, nitrate and diuretic all in one. It's a, a synthetic version of B-type natriuretic peptide, and we know that it gets secreted a lot in tissue smarculars, so why not mimic it by giving it as a drug? But it has limited role because it hasn't been shown to be any better than just infusing nitroglycerin and furosemide. And it costs a whole lot more, so seldom will you see that used. Don't worry about that being the right answer to anything. All right, so you can see we've come from symptom control in the early days, diuretics into joxin, plus or minus traditional vasodilators, to now really targeting the disease process itself and slowing the progression. So that's where we stand today in terms of the best types of therapies to treat half of the patients with heart failure. The other half, it's yet to be determined whether or not drug therapy can make a difference. So far it hasn't. If it has, it's been very modest. There's an interesting drug for diabetes that's now being studied in both populations. It has some diuretic-like effects, and the hope is that maybe it will be a benefit, but we'll have to wait and see. It's not going to be done for a couple more years. The year you graduate, 2020, is the year that study will be done. I think it's called Empower. All right. Yeah? Will you be expecting us to know the names of these studies and exactly what they um, no, you know what would be good to know is the, what the um, V-H-E-F-T stands for? What did that stand for? Vasodilator heart failure study. Yeah, it might be good to know that. But more importantly, the historical aspect of it. I don't care about the study name. It's how we've come from using drugs that made sense through physics to drugs that above and beyond the physics are actually the disease-modifying ones. So it started with DIG and diuretics. We added, just like the slide says, we added vasodilators, and then we graduated out of actually sheer luck. Some of this work was done here by the cardiologists, and they'll tell you that, that it was just sheer luck that they picked an ACE inhibitor, and it was, of that, it was that good. And so ACE inhibitors, ARBs, beta blockers, mineral corticoid receptor antagonists. Yeah. All right. Stop there for today, or you want to keep going? That's enough. <laughs> Question? Yeah. So they're on an ACE inhibitor and a beta blocker and plus or minus a mineral Is that like a standard therapy? Yes. And then from that, you have to be a safe. Yeah.
Yeah, and with each of those, unlike high blood pressure, you're trying to maximize the dose. Like, for the beta block, you want to get it as high as you can. For the ACM, you get as high as you can. For the as high as you can. For blood pressure, we're trying to just get the blood pressure to be small doses of drugs. But hopefully, we're not treating to blood pressure patients. We're just creating as much drug in the body as they can tolerate. So the higher the dose, the higher the dose. But if you're up in the uh, so subgroup analysis of these studies, and there was two parts, one in part one and part two, and then from that they did the African American heart failure studies. But that's implied that there's a lot of people. Right. And there is. So patients that are African American do not have a lot of people. Oh, national And it was proven here. Yeah. But they might, on top of it, so everyone else is not on my grade. They used to be. like per se drug, how the drugs work. A number of the drugs that we discussed today we've already covered in terms of their mechanisms over the past couple of weeks. So now we're just reinforcing how they might be used for a particular type of disease. That is how common? Very common. Yeah. It's um, probably the number one cause of patients to be admitted to the hospital. In terms of a primary diagnosis, and a very common cause for what happening after that admission. De death is very high. <laughs> Chance for death in the next five years is like 50%. And before that, readmission. Right. So lots, lots, and lots of admissions, and lots and lots of readmissions, and a very high mortality rate once the diagnosis is reached. Many people, as they get older, they have fear of developing cancers. In females, it's one type of cancer. In males, it's the other. In males, what's the type of cancer that we oftentimes grow into? Prostate. Prostate cancer, right? What's the risk of that happening if you were to live to, say, like 90 years of age? One in three. Really high? Yeah, not compared to heart failure, right. What is it about? One in three. It's more than one in. It's it's a different number. It's less than one in three. That's a pretty high number. It's about it's about maybe one in maybe one in ten. Maybe 
one in ten chance? What about um, the cancer we worry about if you're female? Breast cancer, right? What's the chances of that? A little bit higher, right? About one in ten for prostate. It's maybe like a one in eight for breast cancer. But there's still like ten to twelve percent for heart failure. It's it's what? It's about double that. It's like one in five chance of developing heart failure. If you live that long. Who wants to live that long? Until you're 90 years of age. Some, some clearly want to get there and others clearly do not. Others want to wait and see how things go. <laughs> Alright, have you talked about have you talked about heart failure in other courses? <laughs> it's like come up sort of tangentially. So there's have you talked about how it's categorized? No. no. Right, so there's there's two means to categorize heart failure. The one that almost everyone's familiar with is this one. The New York Heart Association classification scheme, which has been used since maybe the 1970s, maybe even before that, which describes the disease based on the symptoms that patients are experiencing. The more severe and frequent the symptoms, the higher the class that you belong to. So when you have very infrequent symptoms, but a diagnosis of heart failure, you're usually in what class? In class one. And when you're having symptoms all of the time, with exertion or at rest, you're <coughs> usually in class four on your way to being in class four. Is it possible for you to say one day be in class three, another day be in class two, and then another day be back in class three? Yeah, right, so you, because it's based on your symptoms, and symptoms can vary day to day, in some cases even hour to hour, there's some moving between the classes that can occur as the disease progresses as the days, weeks, and months go by. But does the disease really show reversibility? No, it's a progressive disease. We can probably do a few things, lifestyle and pharmacologic-wise, to slow down the rate of progression of that disease. But it's a progressive disease. And that's why this categorization scheme is supplemented with another one because this suggests there's some reversibility to a disease, in which case there really isn't. If you can go from three to two, does that mean you're really getting better? Probably not. It's just you're having a better day. Maybe you're better managed from a fluid status point on one particular day versus another. And so probably 15, maybe 16, 17 years ago, a staging system was implemented, this staging system here, using simple letters, A through D, that more addresses the structural changes that occur with heart failure and as heart failure progresses. So if you're in stage B, there's no going back to stage A. If you're in stage B, there's usually not going back to stage C unless some things happen that are pretty, uh, pretty extreme. This is somewhat analogous to how cancers are staged. The stage A here is people at high risk for developing heart failure. They don't have it yet, but there's a whole bunch of things in their lives or characteristics about them that make them at very high risk for developing heart failure. Similar to people at risk for developing a certain type of malignancy. And then they get to stage B, 
and there's some evidence of disease, although the patients don't really express that in an outward way that's easy to measure subjectively or even objectively, that's comparable to carcinoma in situ, right? localized disease. Then you have stage C and stage D, and that's more comparable to what? Metastatic disease, if it were cancer, that has poor prognosis. Now, why could there be potentially some reversibility of stage D, technically speaking? End stage disease, end stage heart failure. <laughs> right, if a patient were to successfully undergo heart transplantation, then it would probably take them out of the stage D category. Although on paper, we may still consider them a stage D person, because at one point, that's where they were. So to accurately categorize heart failure, it would be both classification through New York Heart Association, class one, two, three, or four, and what is the structural deficit you're dealing with, the staging system implemented by the two large cardiology associations in this country about 15 years ago. I think it was actually 2001 when this began to be used, but we'll just say about 15 years ago. Then there are these two overarching types of heart failure. The one in the middle here, that's sometimes called systolic dysfunction, and the one on the right, that's sometimes called diastolic dysfunction. So in the middle, we have these large ventricles that are not able to get enough blood out to the rest of the body. So in any case, whatever the cause of your heart failure is, whatever type it is, the symptoms that patients experience is an inability of the heart to pump blood and fluid to where it needs to go. And there's congestive symptoms as a result of that. Poor tissue oxygenation, poor blood flow, pooling, fluid retention, and all the things that you would come to associate with heart failure. You can see in the middle, this systolic dysfunction, the ventricles are much larger than they should be compared to normal on the left here. And the percent of blood that is able to be pumped out of that ventricle into the rest of the body is compromised. And we measure that in what term? Ejection fraction, right? So the ejection fraction, we would like that to be what number? And that heart that's healthy on the left, you'd like it to be over 50%, 55%, 60%. That's the percent of blood within that ventricle that's able to be pumped out to the rest of the body. And if it's up around 55, 60%, that means you're getting enough of that blood out into the places it needs to go. Things are functioning normally. In the middle picture here, something less than that is occurring. It could be 40%, it could be 30%, it could be much less than 20%, and the degree of lowering oftentimes correlates with the class <coughs> symptoms we talk about, class two, three, four, you're more and more likely to have lower and lower ejection fractions. On the right, is there a reduction in the ejection fraction? No. And why isn't there? There's less volume to begin with. The percent of blood that's pumped out looks to be fine. The actual volume, the absolute number, is different. <coughs> right? And that's because now you have these thickened walls surrounding your ventricles and the capacity to hold a large volume of blood is limited. So it's a much narrower ventricle. And even though you may still be able to pump out 50 or 55 or 60% of the blood contained in this ventricle, the absolute volume is much smaller. 
So the ejection fractions look, oftentimes they look normal. And so the terms that we're using now, and we have been now for maybe the past five or six years, to describe these two types of heart failure are what? The one in the middle is now called heart failure with Yep, heart failure with something, with something ejection fraction, with REF, heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, and on the right hand side, it's called heart failure with, yep, preserved, preserved ejection fraction. So if you're trying to picture what those two, te two terms mean, or what they would look like, it's, it's really summarized in this slide here. Heart failure with reduced ejection fraction are these large ventricles that overfill, such an overfill that the ventricle just can't get rid of all the blood, not even close to how much it should. And then <coughs> heart failure with preserved ejection fraction are these stiffened ventricles with these large thick walls, the volume that they can hold is compromised. The ejection fraction looks preserved. But all the same symptoms can ensue because at the bottom end of the road consequence, you still have reduced blood flow getting out to the rest of the body and the tissues that need it. All right, so for all of those millions of people that have heart failure, and it's like 20 to 30 million people worldwide, which is a pretty large number. What percent of them have the type of heart failure you see in the middle? This, this reduced ejection fraction. Is this the majority of the people with heart failure? Yeah. Yeah. No. So the majority, the majority are saying no or want to say no. And those that don't trust me still are saying otherwise. Um, or maybe they're saying no. What about on the right? How common is that? More common? So preserved ejection fraction is the more common of the two? What, what would be the causes for one or the other? For instance, what's the most common cause of heart failure with reduced ejection fraction? Well, volume overload is a symptom. It wouldn't necessarily be the cause. Could could contribute, but isn't usually the initial insult. It's usually damage to the heart tissue, which would come from myocardial infarction, cardiomyopathy, damage to the heart tissue leads to this. So someone who's had some, suffered a myocardial infarction, that's what they're most likely progressing towards if they're not there already. This type of heart failure that you see in the middle. What about the one on the right? Most common cause is hypertension. Yeah, and it turns out that of those 30 or so million people that are heart failure, it's not exact, but it's close to a 50-50 split. So there's, so there's almost equal parts, more reason you should trust me, there's almost equal parts that have reduced ejection fraction, that have preserved ejection fraction in terms of who's diagnosed. 
drug toxicity. You'll talk about certain types of cancer chemotherapy later next semester. Some of the that that block is taught by one of my colleagues. It's two lectures. There's a very important type of cancer chemotherapy, doxorubicin, that also can do what MIs do to the heart and cause this reduced ejection fraction. So drug toxicity, ischemic damage versus prolonged, poorly controlled high blood pressure on the right. Now, why is it intuitive to say that the reduced ejection fraction population is more common? Because I, that's not exactly what you mean to say. Because it's because it's something you can it's measurable, right? Ejection fraction looking normal versus preser preserved versus reduced. That's what you meant to say, right? Yeah. And but why why else? <laughs> It's human nature to associate congestive symptoms with reduced ejection fraction, and yet you can have all the same symptoms with preserved ejection fraction. So it's very intuitive to think that reduced is the more common of the two. The other is because almost all of the studies that have been done to show us that using the types of drugs that we use for heart failure confers mortality protection have included what patients? The reduced ejection fraction population. So what are some of the standards of care, drug therapy-wise, for people with heart failure? What types of drugs? Diuretics for everyone, right, to manage the fluid symptoms. And we've done that for as long as heart failure has been around, and we've had diuretics to use. Drugs that modify the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system. Whether those drugs affect hemodynamics or not, they seem to confer mortality risk reduction, which is different from diuretics. They'll certainly keep you alive, and they'll keep you from having as severe or frequent symptoms, but they don't by themselves with long-term use slow down progression of the disease, whereas drugs like ACE inhibitors or ARBs can slow disease progression. And that's what I'm referring to, is drugs like that. So drugs that can alter the disease course. ACE inhibitors, ARBs, what else? Beta blockers. And anything else that alters the renin angiotensin system. So those mineral corticoid receptor antagonists that we talked about three months ago, or last week. <laughs> feels like three months ago. Um, would all be potentially beneficial drugs to slow down progression of the disease. All of those studies that have been shown that they actually do that, that disease slows and survival is longer, have been in this population, reduced ejection fraction. Either the preserved ejection fraction population wasn't in the study, that population wasn't included, or when they have been studied, the outcomes just haven't been as good. And so this is a big gap in care. We don't really have the same kinds of therapies today that are as disease-modifying as we do for reduced ejection fraction. So it's another reason why we default to reduced ejection fraction population, because we treat them more often with what's called guideline-based therapy, <coughs> guideline-targeted therapy. The preserved ejection fraction population, we use all the same drugs, but they haven't been shown to produce the same kind of benefits, at least in terms of mortality. All right, so just to keep someone free of symptoms, diuretics are very important. And what type of diuretics? 
In this case, we want a diuretic that's going to be strong enough to acutely produce changes in fluid, get rid of that extra edema, drop weight in the way of maybe a couple of kilograms at a time per day, use of drugs. So that's where the loop diuretics have a large role. The thiazides aren't strong enough to do this. Thiazides are great for blood pressure lowering. They're not strong enough for acutely changing fluid. Loops, loops diuretics will give you that benefit. How about the underlying issue with the heart not beating forcefully enough and getting the blood to where it goes? What kind of other therapy is sometimes used symptomatically to help manage these patients? Nitrates. We can use nitrates in other types of vasodilators to reduce either preload or afterload or both. And that certainly has an impact on symptoms and a little bit of an impact on disease progression, although not as strong as renin modification or beta blocker modification. What else? A very old, old type of therapy that up until the 1980s, everyone got. Inotropes? Inotropes as, and this sort of, this falls in the category that's sort of very related to inotropes, but traditional inotropes like milrinone, dobutamine, or drugs <coughs> like bridge to transplantation, but certainly inotropes were, were the strategy and what was the inotrope-like drug that I'm thinking about? Digoxin. Digoxin. Yeah, digoxin in, in, in diuretics for everyone up until the 1980s. In beginning 1990s, early 2000s, digoxin largely fell out of favor. If you look at the numbers of patients that were on digoxin just 10 years ago in this country, it was over 10 million. So early 2000s, we had well over 10 million patients on digoxin who had heart failure. And what is it today? Yeah, it's around 1 million. So the drop has been quite severe. Why is that? We have other drugs that confer better benefit in terms of overall mortality risk, combined with the fact that digoxin is a drug with a narrow therapeutic window and a very heavy potential for drug toxicity. We're going to talk about it towards the end, but it's not a drug we use anywhere near as often as we used to. Everyone with heart failure, especially the symptomatic heart failure po population, would get digoxin, unless it was a clear, clear contraindication to its use in addition to diuretics. We still use diuretics. They're still very important drugs. Digoxin, not as important in these days. And so what happened is in the 1980s, <coughs> way back to that decade, some of the folks who were treating heart failure began to add vasodilators. So remember, everyone's on loop diuretics. Almost everyone's on digoxin. Let's, like you guys are assuming, let's reduce preload, reduce afterload, give some vasodilators, and see if that has some benefit. And the vasodilators that were being used were a combination of a vasodilator that reduces preload and a vasodilator that reduces afterload. So let's see if we can pull these drugs out of the archives. <laughs> Who can remember a type of vasodilator that reduces preload mostly? Nitrates. Nitrates. Yeah, nitrates. 
So nitroglycerin derivatives, in this case, something called isosorbide dinitrate. And if you go back and look at the drugs for angina, it was one of the oral nitroglycerin options that we can sometimes give patients. Usually this is dosed two or three times a day, but what do you want to make sure you do? Nitrate. Provide a nitrate-free period every day. Yeah. In, in combination with an arterial vasodilator, what do you think that was? Enlodipine? Wasn't enlodipine, it's a good guess. This was back in the 1980s. So what were the vasodilators? What was the question? What were the vas? It was a combination of agents. It was a nitrate combined with some other drug that dilates arteries. It wasn't enlodipine, but that's a good guess. Those types of calcium channel blockers, the first nifedipine was just being introduced to the market, so it was a little bit too early for that. This would go back to the drugs for hypertension towards the end. Hydralazine? Hydralazine. Yeah, hydralazine. So isosorbide and hydralazine in combination were being used. And there was a large study that was done called the vasodilator heart failure study or heart failure trial, VF, to prove whether or not that made a difference. Let's take this combination of therapies and add them on top of what we're already using. What are we already using? Digoxin and diuretics. So everyone, everyone with reduced ejection fraction that we're treating gets that standard of care. And now we take half of those patients, give them a placebo, or two placebos, and then the other half and give them this combination of drugs, isosorbide and hydralazine, and follow them up for a number of months to years and see if there's a difference. And what did they find? There was a difference. It was small, but there was a difference. Not just in terms of symptoms, but in terms of survival. So if you were on a vasodilator, a combination of them, there was improved survival. Not huge improvement, but it was better than had you just taken a placebo on top of the usual therapy. So that was encouraging, but it wasn't as encouraging as the folks doing this work had hoped for. So they said, let's, let's pick another vasodilator and see if that can do better. So we'll take now everyone and put them on digoxin, diuretic, combination vasodilators. And we'll add a placebo to half of them and we'll add another drug on top of that to the other half and see if that can produce benefit. And what was it that they added at that time? ACE inhibitor. And so the consensus study, I think it was consensus, did just that. And it showed that if you added an ACE inhibitor on top of everything else that we're using at the time, you got dramatic improvement in survival, like double-digit differences in terms of risk, difference in risk. I think it was captopril, but it might have been enalapril. Regardless, it was one of the ACE inhibitors. It was in patients with really advanced heart failure. These are patients with stage three, mostly stage four heart failure, so really sick. And from there on out, there were some other studies. SOLVE, which was a study of left ventricular dysfunction, the um, vasodilator heart failure type two trial. Those looked at additional ACE inhibitors in patients that weren't as sick, class two or class three heart failure. And they were definitive. 
they showed that adding ACE inhibitors dramatically improved lifespan, independent of what they were doing in the blood pressure. Many of these patients didn't even have hypertension, but give them an ACE inhibitor on top of what we're already doing, and not only are their symptoms better, they are less likely to die, and less likely to die by like 20 to 30 to 40 percent difference, at least in terms of relative risk reduction. It was around that time that it became apparent digoxin wasn't really contributing to the mortality benefit. It was helping with symptoms, it was keeping some people out of the hospital, but it wasn't doing anything in terms of keeping people alive or altering progression of the disease. And what we came to appreciate was that drugs that affect neurohormones are the ones that seem to slow cardiac remodeling that comes with heart failure disease. So what's an example of a neurohormone? Norepinephrine, epinephrine, dopamine to some extent. What else? Not so much acetylcholine. Renin, angiotensin II, aldosterone. <coughs> All of those substances fall into this broad category of neurohormones that when left unchecked, contribute to the advancement and the progression of heart failure. So if you can block them, however you block them, you can slow progression of the disease. And that's where the therapies are today, really targeting disease modification and reduced ejection fraction of these neurohormone blockers. All right, so for the drugs for heart failure, we have diuretics that have been used forever and will continue to be used as long as this disease exists. There's beta blockers and ACE inhibitors, or alternatively, angiotensin receptor blockers. We've talked about the pharmacology of most of this, but we're going to talk about some of the nuances today of diuretics and a couple of other things. Mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists, on top of these other therapies, should patients continue to worsen in their disease. Nitrates and vasodilators, for those that seem to need them, and there's certain populations that benefit more than others. Digoxin for some, and then the other therapies are more about the bridge drugs to transplantation. All right, so within the, the diuretics, we talked mostly about the thiazide and thiazide type agents last week. Remember, I wanted you to remember which names. Hydrochlorothiazide and? Chlorothiazide. And chlorothalidone. Those are both thiazide type diuretics. They're both used extensively. You need to recognize both names for this class and the exam that's coming up, and for clinical practice. It's good to be familiar with both of those drug names. Hydrochlorothiazide is used the most, but chlorthalidone is growing in popularity. What's the difference? One's longer acting and more potent. Chlorthalidone, it's a stronger, it's a stronger diuretic. It produces better 24-hour control of blood pressure. All right. So of these, we use loop diuretics, furosemide primarily. And so these are the other loops, eumetanide, torsemide, ethacrinic acid. One stand out. One stands out clearly, right? Yeah, what's different about that one? We may not be as familiar with it. It certainly looks and is spelled and sounds different. It's two words versus one. 
<laughs> There's something else about it too I'm going to show you here in a second. So the way loops work is to block a sodium chloride, what's called simp order. And this is located in what part of the kidney? In the loop of Henle, thus they're called loop diuretics. And mostly in the thick ascending part of the loop. That's where the majority of these simp orders are. And this, I think, is a picture of it. So this importer is responsible for reabsorption of sodium, potassium, and chloride ions. It gets blocked. And so instead of reabsorbing all of these substances, you lose them all in the urine. So there's sodium loss, there's chloride loss, and there's potassium loss. And along with that, there's loss of water. Right? So that's the diuresis. In addition, and it's related to this effect on the simp order, but not directly so. There's loss of magnesium and calcium as well. So you can lose magnesium and you can lose calcium in the urine, just like you can lose these other elements or ions. All right, now these are the structures for some of the loop diuretics that are available worldwide. Not all of these are available in this country, but if you look at everything that's out there across the globe, come up with a few other agents on top of the ones I just showed you. Again, furosemide is the prototype. See that, be familiar with it, but it's not the only one that's used. Furosemide increasingly is being used in some settings, and certainly ethacrinic acid gets used in certain types of patients. Now, which of these diuretics is not a sulfonamide-based agent? Ethacrinic acid. Etosolone as well, but mostly ethacrinic acid. This last one because we don't really use it in this country. So ethacrinic acid is not a sulfonamide. All of the others that end in IDE, furosemide, dimetanide, furosemide, those are all sulfonamide-containing drugs. They have the sulfur bonded to oxygen and nitrogen in that arrangement in a ring-like structure in close proximity. That's what makes a sulfonamide drug a sulfonamide. And ethacrinic acid is not that. So who might be a good candidate, or who might we be looking to use ethacrinic acid in? A patient with a sulfur allergy. What does that mean? What you just said. Sulfur allergy. What are you talking about? Allergy to sulfonamide class of medications. Right, so allergy to this particular arrangement of molecules within a compound. That's what makes a sulfonamide a sulfonamide. All right, so now let's just say that you happen to take iron. You take an iron supplement. What form of iron are you usually taking? What's it otherwise called? Ferrous sulfate, right? It's iron in its sulfate form, sulfate salt. Or if you take morphine, oftentimes you see morphine abbreviated as what? MSO4, morphine sulfate, right? So if you have an allergy to a sulfonamide-based drug, does that mean you're allergic to iron sulfate or morphine sulfate? No. Okay. 
<laughs> I want you to trust your intuition, right? Your first instinct is usually the correct one. And initially you all said, no. most of you said no, and then I was silent. And you began to doubt yourselves. <laughs> all right. So this on the top is a traditional sulfate-like product that's usually a salt. I think this one's sodium lauryl sulfate, but anyway, it's a sulfate. On the bottom is another sulfonamide-based drug. If you're allergic to one, it does not mean you're allergic to the other. So if someone tells you they have an allergy to sulfur, what does that mean? It means they could have an allergy to either one. You've got to figure out which one it is. How do you do that? You start asking questions. And a good question to ask is, tell me about the medication that led to that descriptor. Right? What is it that caused someone to put this in your chart or for you to tell me there's a sulfur allergy? And based on whatever that other drug was, you can usually deduce what the reaction is or what the type of drug is that causes the reaction. So what's the usual cause? Bactrim. Yeah, Bactrim, which is what kind of drug? A sulfonamide-containing antibiotic. And the sulfonamide in Bactrim is sulfamethoxazole. In fact, that's the structure you see up here. This is sulfamethoxazole. So this is the sulfa component of Bactrim. So if the allergic reaction, the dermatologic history of rash or whatever it is that occurred was to Bactrim, then there is the possibility that you might have allergic-like reaction to one of these sulfonamides. It's nowhere near close to 100% cross sensitivity. Not even 50%. It's like 10, 20%. But there is some. And if it happens, because usually it doesn't preclude us from using these drugs, we try it and we just know that there might be a problem. If it happens, then we need to seek an alternative. And that's where we end up with ethacrinic acid. It's not an easy drug to find. It tends to be more expensive because it is unique. So we'd rather not use it if we don't have to but there are some patients that need it. And it's no one that has an allergy to ferrous sulfate or the sulfites that might be in food or salad products, but it's some of the people that might have had a, an allergic reaction to, say, Bactrim. And the more severe that reaction was, the more likely the cross-sensitivity is. So someone developed anaphylaxis to Bactrim. You're probably not going to test the waters with another sulfonamide drug without being extra cautious. But if it were a mild rash, you usually proceed with whatever sulfonamide-based diuretic you want, and then if things occur, you change from there. Does the drug interaction sometimes happen because of structural interactions like that, or is it like if someone has, a, has drug interactions with the Bactrim, is it because of the Bactrim itself or from the sulfonamide? Um, when you say drug interactions, what do you... What yeah, do you they like say you can't take Bactrim. So if someone's been told they can't take Bactrim, it's usually because they developed an allergic reaction to it. There could have been something else, which is independent of the structure, but more often than not, it's because it's a sulfonamide-containing agent that's caused, and it's this, that the body's developed an allergic reaction to. Um, if you were to give somebody a, a sulfonamide-containing drug that had a mild reaction, is you prophylactically give them Benadryl as well, kind of like to mitigate... Yeah, so if, if someone has a history of one of these reactions, could you mitigate this by pretreating them with an, an antihistamine drug like Benadryl? 
And the answer to that is yes, and sometimes that might be the strategy we employ, especially if that person's otherwise under observation. We may choose to do that as a, a means of getting them through that therapy. Or we're trying to maybe desensitize someone to, say, Bactrim. Like, just say Bactrim is the only choice that is going to be effective for the infection. We may have no choice but to desensitize, in which case we may choose to use antihistamines in combination. Yeah, and are these comparable in efficacy? They are all comparable in efficacy. There are subtle differences between them in terms of distribution. So, for example, if the edema in your body happens to be more like centrally mediated in the GI tract, torsamide has a better reputation than some of the others for being more effective for what's called not edema. But otherwise, they're all pretty equally effective. They all inhibit that reabsorption of sodium by about 25%. All right, but regardless, furosemide is the drug that you'll have to recognize. And then just be familiar with this whole allergy piece. It's a possibility. If someone has sulfonamide-based allergy history, they may have allergic reaction to sulfonamide-based diuretics. And many of the diuretics, thiazides too, are sulfonamide-based agents. Difference between sulfonamide and sulfate. And you've got to take a history to figure out what that difference is. Sometimes the patients will tell you what. They don't know. They don't know what the history of allergy was. It's there, but they can't recall, or they don't remember, or maybe their parents told them, and they never really knew themselves. All right, so the loop diuretics, we can base these drugs' dose on the dynamic response we get. So when we give them for heart failure, we're usually trying to do what? Get rid of extra fluid measured in, measured in weight. Right, a patient's weight. We want you to be with at this weight within a certain reason, maybe plus or minus a couple kilograms. And if you're not there, then take a little bit more of your diuretic than you would otherwise. So it's pretty easy to titrate the dose of this drug based on what you can observe in a relatively easy way. And you can actually have patients do this for a protocol on their own, and then maybe some telephonic support <coughs> to help them get them through this. So usually furosemide is started at what's considered a relatively low dose and then you work your way up based on what's needed. Sometimes this drug here, metolazone, that one that was in parentheses on the right-hand side of the diuretic slide, is used to supplement furosemide activity. So this is the one, just to go back here. It's the one that was at the bottom of this first slide, in parentheses, metolazone. It's a thiazide-like diuretic that has very potent efficacy when used in combination with furosemide. So it will be used on an as-needed basis on those days where your typical furosemide dose isn't doing the trick. Like usually I double the dose and I get, you know, maybe doubling of the fluid loss. A particular day you're not doing so well, add a little metolazone and you'll get that boosting of effect. It's too dangerous to use every day that way. Too dramatic of a diuresis, but episodically might be of use. So again, built into that protocol, have patients use metolazone, small dose of it, when certain circumstances present themselves. The brand name of furosemide is? Lasix. Lasix. And that drug looks and sounds an awful lot like what? Remember this? We talked about this at the beginning. Lasix, the most common dose is? 20 milligrams per day. 
And there was another drug we talked about at the beginning of the semester. Most common dose, 20 milligrams per day. Was originally going to be called Losec, but instead had to change its name to Prilosec because it looked too much like Lasix, the dose, the name. Remember that? Yeah. That was like three months ago. Why is it Lasix? Why do we call it Lasix? What is the origin of that name? It's, it's duration of action. Take a dose now. It's duration of action is about is about six hours. Yeah, it lasts about six hours. There's the trivia that you remember three years from now. All else is lost. Alright, so what's the role of beta blockers in heart failure? I sort of skipped over this. They reduce the contractile effort of the heart. They reduce the contractility of the heart. The rate and the force of the contraction are reduced. And what's the value in doing that? Reduce workload on the heart, reduce oxygen demands, and slow down that remodeling. In this case, you're getting in the way of epinephrine and norepinephrine and what they would otherwise do to facilitate further progression. And so up until, again, the 1980s, early 1990s, the treatments of choice for heart failure weren't to slow it down with beta blockers. In fact, this was counterintuitive to how we thought we should treat the disease. You were giving drugs that did what? Digoxin increases the force of contractility. Why would we want to slow that down or reduce it? It made no sense, at least at the time. And it turns out that that's exactly what we ought to be doing. And giving drugs that block the beta receptor, at least certain ones, not only reduces workload on the heart, it does translate into that benefit of slowed cardiac remodeling. Now, there are specific beta blockers that have been tested to show the mortality reduction that we get that's comparable to ACE boost. And these are the ones. Which one am I going to expect you to remember? Yeah, why don't we keep a limited number of drugs? There's already a lot on the board. Metoprolol is our prototype beta blocker. We've already seen it. We need to know it for hypertension already anyhow. Good to know for angina. Good to know for heart failure. What beta blockers are missing? Patenolol is not here. Propranolol <coughs> is not here. Those beta blockers have never been shown, for better or worse, to have benefit in patients with heart failure. Not that there's evidence to show that they're not beneficial, it just doesn't exist, so we don't use them. With metoprolol, we specifically use the long-acting form. It's called metoprolol succinate. Labeled as XL, but remember, it's a succinate salt just makes it longer acting. This is one of the few extended release products in medicine. We can actually cut the pill in half and not destroy extended release, because inherently it's longer acting. The salt form makes it so. It turns out the immediate release metoprolol, metoprolol tartrate, has been studied. It hasn't looked as good. So there's something different about this version. It may have been just a difference in the way it was dosed. But regardless, it's this specific metoprolol. If you're using metoprolol for heart failure, you ought to be using metoprolol sesame. Is there indications for one of these over the other? Is there indication or preference for one over the other? Depends on who you talk to. Um, there was one study that was done. The only real study that it compares these head-to-head -head was called Comet. And this looked at carvedilol 
versus metoprolol and found that carbetalol was better. But there were two problems with it. I've sort of alluded to it already. Number one is that it compared carbetalol to not metoprolol succinate, but metoprolol tartrate, the immediate release short acting metoprolol. And it compared a really high dose, relatively speaking, of carbetalol to a really tiny dose of metoprolol. So it really wasn't designed. And it was, yeah, it was certainly industry sponsored for that study that probably skewed the findings a little bit. So no one has really believed that there's much of a difference. And we practice for the most part with any one of these, as long as one of these should be sufficient. And what's most accessible to patients, either carvedilol or metoprolol because they've been around for a long time and are generic versions and affordable. The other two, not so much in terms of access, but probably no different otherwise. So we think that they're probably all equal. Head-to-head -head comparisons are lacking. The ones that exist are, they're confounded. All right, and then um, this pathway here. So we have, what drugs that work within this? We have ACE inhibitors that knock out the converting enzyme. So what drugs are those? Lysinopril, sunopril, all the other prills. We have angiotensin receptor blockers that block the receptors. What are those? The SARTAN drugs, Losartan, Valsartan, a bunch of others. And we have, what else? There's the direct renin inhibitor, aliscarin, but it's not used for heart failure. Remember, it's this new drug, it's brain name only. We haven't bothered to test it in heart failure. It'll probably work, but why go there when we have other options that are easier to access? <coughs> and then what else? The mineral corticoid receptor antagonist, or you could otherwise say the aldosterone receptor antagonist. And what's that? What drug is that? It's also considered a potassium sparing diuretic. Spironolactone, yes, spironolactone. So that's what we have at our disposal. <coughs> Everyone with heart failure reduced ejection fraction ought to be on a beta blocker if they can tolerate it. And an, either an ACE inhibitor or an ARB, not both, but one or the other, if they can tolerate it. That's standard of care. If it's preserved ejection fraction, they may get those same drugs, but the compelling indication for its use doesn't exist. Like it hasn't been proven to really make a difference. So we use those. Now, if you continue to be symptomatic, we may add spironolactone on top of that. So beta blocker plus ACE inhibitor or beta blocker plus ARB, and then maybe we add spironolactone on top of that. What do we have to be extra careful about if we add spironolactone? Pregnancy. Pregnancy, not, a, not usually a problem in this population, but could be. Sometimes there are pretty severe heart troubles that develop in pregnancy as a consequence of pregnancy that cause severe heart failure. So certainly that's something to deal with. Increases in potassium, right? Even though they may be on loop diuretics, they probably are. They're now on both either ACE inhibitor ARB and spironolactone, each working to promote potassium retention. And what else is oftentimes present? Poor, poor kidney function. Yeah, so their risk for hyperkalemia is just that much higher. 
All right, let me just look through the next few slides and we'll take a break here. So these renin-modifying drugs, ACE inhibitors, ARBs, glucocorticoid receptor antagonists, I put beta blockers here because they do have a weak effect on suppressing renin production. And maybe that confers additional benefit when it comes to their use in heart failure. You won't find them there in textbooks, but there is probably some additional benefit you get from your beta blocker in its ability to suppress renin. And so what we're doing here by interfering with the renin system is preventing all these bad things from happening. The vasoconstriction, the sodium retention, and all the bad effects on the vasculature that can occur as a result of that. We inhibit it and we prevent, or we minimize, or we lessen all these bad things from occurring. In long term, that translates into slow cardiac remodeling and slowing of disease progression. Not reversal, but the rate at which it progresses will be, will be slower. All right, this is a good place to take a break.